Hey everybody, Justin here. So, this episode was laid for reasons that were outside of our control. However, every once in a while, the Lord provides. And indeed, news breaking early on a Friday that we normally don't cover, but we get to tell you now. Kirsten Cinema, no longer a member of the Democratic Party. One of the two bugaboos that were uh, a problem for getting things over the hill when there was a 50-50 Senate now effectively levels the playing field again. She says she will likely still vote in the pattern that she voted before. My assumption is this is more about 24 than it is about the waning days of 22. She does have to defend her Senate seat. She was likely going to get primaried by, uh, you know, forces within her own party. And so she has decided to leave the party. Does this make her more or less electable in Arizona? I don't know. <laughs> it really depends on who the Republicans nominate, considering the Republican uh, Party in Arizona is uh, a, a wacky dacky with silly sauce. And, and you might see Carrie Lake be that nominee. Then maybe. She is kind of a de facto off ramp for uh, for 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 Republicans. And, you know, she was more popular with Democrats than she was with the Republicans. So will she survive being persona non grata? That that is the uh, the big question. So there we go. A little bit of breaking news. The rest of this episode was recorded before any of that happened. So don't expect any more commentary of it. But let's go ahead and get started. This is made possible by Dustin Campbell, Oh Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for December 9th, 2022. Your old pal Justin Robert Young joining you in the aftermath of the midterm. Stretched out by a month and yet done all the same. It was Chuck Schumer holding up a five on one hand, a one on the other. 51 seats for the Democrats. They defend each and every single incumbent seat and then add... Fetterman's open seat or the open seat in Pennsylvania with John Fetterman to make it 51. Obviously, they'd love to have the House as well. They'll have a little bit more maneuverability between Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, although they both are up for election in the next major cycle. That is 2024. And that'll probably be about the time that the, 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 the Democrats luck runs out in the Senate because they've got a hellish map, but we got plenty of time to get to there. We are going to have a smorgasbord of a podcast for you today. Number one, we're going to take a look at the Trump playbook. This is something that I've been thinking a lot about recently. And so I wrote it out. What I believe the Trump playbook is why it was successful for him in 2016 and why it has failed, not only in recruitment, but in 
practice. We'll also use that opportunity to take a look at uh, just how poorly Herschel Walker did relative to the most successful Republican in Georgia, one that Donald Trump tried to kill with a candidate in the primary. That dude got blown out by Brian Kemp. We will also take a look at the brand new plan by the Democrats to reshape their primary and caucus calendar. Bye, bye, Iowa. I think that there's a lot more to be said on this particular issue, but we'll read out what the Democrats want to do. And I will give my defense of Iowa. And finally, we will have Stephen Gutowski. He of TheReload.com and a contributor to CNN. The boy has elevated. We're going to look at the state of gun laws in America. There is a fascinating situation that happened up in Oregon. The trend around red flag laws, how they are being applied. And at the very end, we're going to get into the health of the NRA. He's got a stat at the end about NRA spending in campaigns. And the difference between the amount that they spent in 2016 versus 2022 that I found to be a little bit jaw-dropping. All that. Bird first. What is the Trump playbook? Best I can figure it, here it goes. Step one, this is your base level, celebrity slash name recognition. Now, that's something that happens in politics a lot, name recognition. Name recognition is when they see your name on a ballot, do you know who they are? Do you got a feeling about them one way or another? Do you have a negative feeling about somebody so you'll vote against them? Do you have a positive feeling about somebody so they will vote for you? But before we even get to any of that, do they know your name? Well, when you're a celebrity, they do. That's kind of the, the the base level necessity of being a celebrity is that people know who the hell you are. So when we're looking at it from the Trump perspective, celebrity slash name recognition is measured in raw tonnage. Do people know who you are? Are they willing to have an opinion about you? Do you have to explain to them who you are? The more you have to explain, the less you're actually a celebrity. So in this case, we're going to take the two best applicants of the Trump playbook that ran in 2022 for Senate, Dr. Oz and Herschel Walker. These are national celebrities. They both spent a lot of time on national television. Oz with a syndicated program during the daytime and Herschel Walker as an athlete who played at the highest level of his sport. So, okay, you have a celebrity. You've got name recognition. Let's get into number two. Define the election. At all times, you must be putting your narrative into the center of discussion. Have one core issue that matters the most. It's even better if that issue has been stuck in the mud of government for a while. For Donald Trump, this was immigration. He began with build a wall, and then he developed a lot of variations on a theme. Right. We're going to build a wall and make Mexico pay for it. 
some of them are very fine people. Blah, 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 blah. You need to talk about that incessantly. But also, and in very Trump style, don't shy away from the ephemera. Whatever people want to talk about that day, help them talk about it. Let them know that you are just as curious about the world around you as they are. This separates you from being a politician who only ever wants to talk about exactly what they want to talk about. So have your one key thing that no other quote unquote politician would talk about, because if they wanted to talk about it or if they wanted to get something done about it, then they would have been talking about it the way you are. And then also make sure that you have an opinion on the Oscars. This is what made Trump successful through 2016 in the primary for which he would say, look, I'm the only one talking about immigration. Now, all of a sudden, everybody else wants to talk about it. If anybody was serious about it, then all the time that you guys have been in office, you would have done something. Boom, eviscerates all the people that were there up on that stage. Then he gets to Hillary. Hillary doesn't want to talk about immigration. And in fact, wants to keep pivoting it to the fact that he's a racist. He's she's already lost. In terms of, you know, winning that issue. Now, I think there is some education that needs to be done on picking this issue. Immigration is something that has been looked at at times as a fringe issue. In fact, back in the aughts, it was looked at as an issue that could be jettisoned by the Republican Party. But that's not the case. And so Trump capitalized on it while also talking about, again, any and everything. Number three, and this is where we start to get a little bit further away from what happened in 2022. These are part of the Trump playbook that I don't think a lot of people that were running for Senate that were handpicked by Donald Trump were very good at. Work harder than a politician. This is the bane of every celebrity candidate. When you are a celebrity, People want to tell you how good you are at something. I'm sure at some point in some field, you had a fire in your belly, the likes of which nobody could ever match. But when you get to the highest echelons, you can't help but, you know, take a load off. You still feel like you are that hard worker, but the reality is you're not. As the old boxing adage goes, It's hard to get up and do road work, a.k.a. running for miles and miles and miles to get your cardio up when you slept the night in silk sheets. Here's the reality of why Donald Trump's insane travel schedule that happened during 2016 really benefited him. If you're going to be a populist, you need to be with people as much as possible. TV ads are fine. But a busy calendar matters more. And take it from me, a guy who traveled to states throughout this 2022 contest. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest with you guys. I'm ashamed of some of the trips that I took for you guys during this cycle. Because I would have loved to have covered three, four events. That's why I was there in these states for three, four days. And I wasn't able to do it. And it was largely because the candidates weren't putting them on. So if you're not going to actually go out there and do the work, then you're not running this playbook. 
you are running the failed celebrity playbook for which has bedeviled every famous person who's wanted to get into politics up until Trump. And then there's step four, flood the zone with press. This is another one of those diametrically opposite situations compared to your average politicians. Because politicians in general are risk averse. They don't want to talk to people. They don't want to talk to journalists because it might go wrong. Donald Trump, specifically in 2016, loved doing tough interviews. And so I would say, whatever your diametric opposite is, ideologically, go talk to those people. If you're a conservative, go on MSNBC. If you're a liberal, go on Fox News. This is part of the Mayor Pete playbook by Liz Smith. Do not be afraid. No matter what, if you are treated unfairly, as long as you do it uh, uh, with a, a smile and fight and try to get your points across and push back on, on things that you believe are unfair, well, you're going to get credit from the people that you actually need to motivate. You're not necessarily going over there so you can be a, a Pied Piper for people that are never going to vote for you. In an interconnected media world, you're just showing off that you aren't afraid of anybody. You're not the typical risk-averse politician. Herschel Walker didn't do that. Dr. Oz didn't do that. And if you're not going to do it, then, well, what's the point? You're not actually doing what Trump did to get elected politically. Herschel and Oz had the celebrity but couldn't find issues, didn't work hard, and wouldn't do press. But maybe I'm just totally off on, on, on my own little planet here. Maybe this playbook doesn't even really exist. Maybe Trump 2016 was a unicorn. Maybe he just went against a very unpopular Hillary Clinton that would have lost to Ted Cruz. He might have been a beneficiary of a good economy until COVID tipped the entire world on its head in 2020. Either way, the lesson for Republicans going forward is that there is an endless supply of white working class voters who feel burnt by the Democratic Party. Good. Trump figured that out. But the GOP has him now. And what is losing them elections in winnable states like Georgia are the suburbs. So let's do a little math here. The, these are the results from the Atlanta Metro counties on Tuesday night between Warnock versus Herschel Walker. So I'm just going to read what Herschel Walker got in each of these counties. Now, mind you, he's not going to win any of them. This is where the Democrats live. You just have to be competitive, as competitive as you possibly can be. Gwinnett County, Herschel Walker was at 38%. DeKalb County, 13%. Fulton County, 23%. Cobb County, 40%. Okay, those are a bunch of numbers. Let's take a look at one month ago when Brian Kemp thumped Stacey Abrams in the same election that Walker and Warnock were running in. Gwinnett County, Kemp, 44 and a half. DeKalb County, 18.3%. Kemp in Fulton County, 30.5. 
and Kemp and Cobb County, 47.3. So that means that Kemp overperformed Walker by 6% in Gwinnett, 5% in DeKalb, 7% in Fulton, and 7% in Cobb County. These are the most populous, populous counties in the state of Georgia. Those margins were the difference between a candidate losing by three like Walker did on Tuesday and winning by eight like Kemp did in November. So maybe we are looking in the wrong direction. Maybe we shouldn't be studying the successful once playbook of Donald Trump. Maybe that was a fluke. Maybe we need to be studying the playbook of Brian Kemp. Well, we have plenty of time to look into that, especially when he starts running for Senate against John Ossoff in 2024. But I know that it can be summed up by one sentence. Be a popular sitting politician. Something that Donald Trump and his entire ethos is built diametrically opposed to. Ladies and gentlemen, as we bring this year into the station, I want to remind you to be grateful. Be grateful for all the blessings that you have in your life. Obviously, the holiday season is upon us, and I want everybody to to rein in the spirit. I love the holidays. I love to be to be grateful and count my blessings on on on, on what I have in and around my life. But mostly I want to be thankful to you. I, I, I believe each and every person that listens to this program is a blessing for an independent creator like I am. I'm not plugging into a larger platform. I've had to earn your trust. I've had to earn your listenership each and every week. It makes me so happy when I've seen you guys post your top five listen to stuff on Spotify wrapped or a pocket cast or any of these various apps that do services like that, because it just makes me realize that, that you guys are really riding and dying with me. And you know that these, this is like the two years that we shine. So these next couple weeks might be a little light. (laughs) They might be a little bit light because I'm going to try to recharge my batteries as much as possible because we got two solid Years of absolute, no holds barred, big money trench warfare, a huge primary season, a massive presidential election. It's time to put away the toys because this means war. Each and every poll, each and every campaign announcement, and each and every toll of the campaign undertaker's gong coming to you live and direct on the Politics, Politics, Politics program. A program for which you can double your output for if you head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com Get that $3 level. Get the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday edition. Get the late edition on Thursday. Merry, merry, merry Christmas. I know that the biggest present under the tree for me is the ability to do this program, and it is given to me by you. Take politics seriously. 
Cuscus.com. According to the Democratic Party, there is a brand new primary calendar that would be used as follows if indeed there is a primary in 2024 that would presumably require Joe Biden to not run. But as of now, this is how it would go. South Carolina would go first, holding its primary on February 3rd, 2024. Three days later, Nevada and New Hampshire would follow on the same day. Georgia would vote next on February 13th, and then Michigan on February 27th. There is no current slot for Iowa among the first five. We got a long way to go before this is finalized. New Hampshire has it in their state constitution that they will go first no matter what. They will move stuff up. They have done this in the past. This isn't the first time that one or both parties have challenged this calendar. That being said, let me say this. This is a wish list for Joe Biden, which is weird because he should never be running in a primary ever again. He's a sitting president. Sitting presidents don't run in primaries, and the ones that do don't win. But it is effectively regulatory capture for the Democratic Party. South Carolina is a Jim Clyburn popularity contest. You don't need to bother the state party to have them spend money. You don't need to ask these campaigns to, to buy television ads. Literally just have them all go to Clyburn's office and have them all ask pretty please. Clyburn can sit on a throne like it's Game of Thrones and, and he can uh, listen to everybody as all the candidates bring tribute and then he can anoint his favorite and that'll be that. South Carolina is not a competitive state. It will not be a competitive state in the near future in the general election. So there's not really a whole lot of, uh, of advantage in trying to uh, build up that, that, that state or, or, or raise your profile in that state. Not in the same way that Barack Obama did to Iowa when he made his career in Iowa and then won Iowa in both 2008 and 2012. But we'll get there in a second. To put within a week three primaries is diluting the concept of primaries. You are effectively bringing things. I, I, I really just don't know. Does, does the Democratic Party want this to just be less of a thing? They just want the most powerful candidates to be able to run over smaller opposition. Is that the problem when you put a week of narrative building between these things? Because let's say somebody scores an upset in South Carolina. Won't happen unless Jim Clyburn is actively looking to burn his own party down. But let's say for a second he does. Well, three days later, you're going to have the ability to totally erase that narrative. Who does that benefit? It benefits big money Big name Democratic candidates. That's who it benefits. So three days later, you take your other legacy primary, the first in the nation primary, New Hampshire, and you pair it on the same day as Nevada, which is essentially Clark County. So you are saying, okay, everybody who's courting white people go to New Hampshire. 
anybody who's courting Hispanics go to Las Vegas. All right. So now we're we're kind of segregating the strategies here racially. Let's also mention that South Carolina has the highest number of black Democratic voters in this schedule here. Or at least by percentage. A week after that. So effectively, we have a blitz in in the first three days, beginning in February. Then we go to Georgia. Georgia would be on February 13th. I don't mind Georgia as an early state, to be honest. In fact, I'd prefer it to South Carolina. But I would put it fourth in South Carolina's slot. Because, and we're going to get to this when I defend Iowa. But I believe that when you are putting primaries in places with big media markets, and Atlanta is a big media market, then you are essentially asking for these campaigns to come in very well financed. And for an upstart campaign, like, I don't know, Barack Obama's, it benefits him from being able to show that there is some kind of grassroots support in a small state where you already have an entire a decade's worth of political operatives that can drive, that a state you can drive around, don't have to fly, and make your name for yourself. On February 27th, that would be two weeks after Georgia, you have Michigan, which has an even bigger media market of Detroit. Again, I don't want to get too worked up about this until we actually know that this is a a real thing. But I do want to defend Iowa. Because I believe that Iowa has been very good for the Democratic Party. In fact, if there were any party that I think that should ditch it, it's the Republicans. Because it gives you a distorted view of whether or not your candidate is successful with people that aren't evangelical Christians. Mike Huckabee, Ted Cruz, Rick Santorum. These are all people that won Iowa. Does that mean that they were great national candidates? No. In many ways, it was the opposite. But meanwhile, the results in Iowa recently for the Democratic Party were Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders ran a very tight race with Hillary Clinton in 2016, presaging the fact that she was going to have problems with him. Accurate. And then Bernie Sanders won against Mayor Pete in 2020 after they ran neck and neck. And guess what? They're still the two biggest names in the party. Mayor Pete was able to show that he could play at a larger level, something that he eventually did. Was it his time? No. But I do think it was instructive to have him in there. And I do think that he showed up more than Rick Santorum or Mike Huckabee or Ted Cruz, to be, to be totally frank. Beyond that, I just think that the people in Iowa care more. And I'm saying this as somebody who's been on the ground. Yes, they're entitled. Yes, they can be annoying. But every conversation I've ever had with anybody in Iowa, and I, I, I'll, I'll talk to people randomly. I'll go to a random bar on the road and I'll stop in 
And everybody to a man or woman that I have talked to, every bartender has not only had their first selection, but their second, third, and fourth picked out for that caucus. Now, do I think that the Iowa State Party's an absolute mess? Absolutely. And they need to change the rules about how they operate because the current Democratic Party caucus system is absolutely bonkers. I also think that they were set up to fail by the Democratic Party when the the, the, uh, National Party of the Democrats forced that cockamamie app system on them last minute. The investigation into that is shameful from the Dem- from the national side and the state side should have pushed back more. But no, let's make sure that we line the pockets of the the uh, 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 grifter class consultants and disenfranchise the Iowans for whom have been grown up their entire life to care about this process. I think it's dumb. Long live Iowa. I want to be the king of Des Moines. Next time I'm in Iowa, I want to be uh, I want to be known as a staunch defender. I stand with you, people of the corn. And I believe the Democrats are making a mistake by shunting you off the schedule. This has been a very consequential year when it comes to guns. We had bipartisan legislation and many heartbreaks throughout the country when it came to mass shootings. That hasn't stopped the legislation from continuing, including a ballot initiative in Oregon to catch up on the state of guns in America. We bring you one of our favorites, our favorite voices on this subject, Stephen Gutowski of TheReload.com. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Hey, how you doing? Man, I'll tell you what, I'm glad to have you on because, uh, number one, I have... very much appreciated your perspective on the show. And I'm very glad that it is being shared with the wider audience, but also it kind of feels like we're in a very strange moment right now on the topic of guns. We had a lot of uh, movement over the summer 2022 brought bipartisan gun legislation. We had further Mm -hmm. talk about stuff like red flag laws and It seemed like for gun control advocates, it was more movement than they had seen in a very long time. We again have horrifying uh, uh, events that that happened throughout America. And now, at least from my perspective, there feels like this this stasis of nobody really knows where to go. It's like, like, okay, well. Do you wait and and see whether or not the laws that were passed have any effects? Uh, uh, there's been pushback in in states like New York with the with the Supreme Court ruling. There's this whole Oregon thing. So I wanted to bring you on and just go through the kind of state of where we are right now. And let's start with Oregon, where a, a ballot initiative passed and and now is is uh, in, in in stasis or no longer. But please spell out what happened in Oregon. Yeah, it's certainly been a wild summer or the last several months really for gun policy in America and in Oregon's situation is particularly unique not because of the policy they passed necessarily it's a permit to purchase rule which you know a couple other uh deep blue states have even North Carolina has it for handguns um sort of a, a holdover from the Jim Crow era but but they uh they also instituted a magazine ban for any a magazine magazines that hold more than 10 rounds. These, you know, these are things that have been done before. The problem in Oregon yeah. is that they 
Well, the way the ballot initiative was written is that it, the permit to purchase rule goes into effect 30 days after the effective date of the the law being instituted. And so that that would have been December 8th. Um, okay. And, and as you might. So at on December 8th, uh, as written, it would have been illegal to buy any guns either from a dealer or in a private transaction because uh, Oregon has universal background check law there. Mm-hmm. It's actually more than just sales. It actually extends to transfers uh, with, with a couple of exceptions for things like hunting or shooting, you know, at the shooting range, if you let a friend borrow a gun, something like that. But the problem is, as you might imagine, Oregon doesn't have a permit to purchase system in place. Um, <laughs> And so the, what would have happened, um, and there's, there's, uh, I'm sure we'll get to it, but there's a reason this isn't going to happen, but yeah. what would have happened on Thursday, December 8th is that all gun sales in Oregon would have become illegal because under the initiative, uh, which would have gone into effect on December 8th, you can't legally purchase a gun without that permit. And there was and no the way to get a permit. Exist. So, yeah, yeah. So, so there wasn't a way where it's like the ballot initiative would have said, okay, step one. There's a year to create a permit process. And then they could have done they, that. They could have done that. They did not do <laughs> they that. They, 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 they did not put in the the things that they would need. They just said you need a permit for which does currently there's no application. There's no process. Yeah. There's no organization. Literally, it's just mm-hmm. illegal because you need a fantasy permit. Yeah. And uh, oddly, for some reason, they made the deadline 30 days for the permit to purchase, but 180 days for the magazine ban. Um I don't know why it's not clear yeah. why it's just poorly written, I guess. And it seems like the supporters of this law were pretty caught off guard by the whole situation as well, because they uh, had expected, uh, according to the Oregon, Oregon Tonian, which has done a lot of good reporting on this uh, situation, that the governor might be able to just shift the implementation of the law herself. Uh, but of course she doesn't have the power to do that. Um, you yeah. know, this is a, the ballot initiative. It's basically just passing legislation, you know, from the, the voting booth. And yeah. so the governor can't just say, no, I don't, uh, we're not going to implement this the way that it's written out. You know, they can't do that. And so what ended up happening is that the state, which is tasked with defending this law now, uh, the Department of Justice, uh, in Oregon, which which still holds that these underlying policies are constitutional, which is a whole controversy in and of itself. Mm-hmm. They asked a federal judge to actually delay implementation of the law that they asked the judge, you know, please delay this for at least a month. They actually didn't have a timeline for when exactly a permit system would be available. And, it, you know, you're talking about creating one from scratch, essentially. That, yeah. And it's got a lot of requirements to it, actually, because. They need to uh, to get this permit, according to the the new law. And this ballot initiative, by the way, passed with fifty point seven percent of the vote, so it wasn't you know some wow. sort of overwhelming thing. Yeah, but um, <clears throat> anyway, to to get a permit, you'd have to pass a state background check, um, pass a federal background check. Uh, you ha- would have to get state approved firearms safety training, which is another thing that doesn't exist yet uh, so they don't have a standard for that you, you, you know they'd yeah. have to come up with a standard to certify instructors by and they haven't done that either uh because again this has only been 30 days since this thing and and the other thing about it is like the way that they determine when the effective date is uh, it's cl- it's much closer to the vote 
than when it's certified. That was another confusion for the supporters. They didn't understand exactly when the effective date was. It's earlier than they had imagined. And so uh, the other one of the other problems is like it took a while for them to figure out if this initiative won because it was pretty close. It was, with, uh, you know, within two percentage points. And uh, so, you know, we didn't even know that this thing had won until several days after the vote was held. Uh, so the timetables to start working on all this stuff were very short. And I mean, you know, government's not very quick or efficient at coming up with these sorts of processes. Nope. But you also have to pay a, a $65 fee. You have to do fingerprinting. The fingerprinting has to be sent off to the FBI uh, for the background check process, which um, is unique. And uh, how that process will work is another question. I, you know, there's a lot that goes into even just figuring out how to do any of the stuff that's going to be required to legally purchase firearms in Oregon. And, I, you know, the state, I think, realized, like, we're not going to be able to comply with this. So the best hope is just ask the judge for some more time. She can block it, uh, you know, through, through the federal court system. And that's what happened uh, at the federal level. Now, at the, a few hours after that ruling was issued, th- that judge delayed implementation of the permit to purchase rule. But she didn't issue a temporary restraining order, which is what the gun the gun rights groups who were suing wanted. There's actually four separate cases uh, against oh. this law already. You know, yeah. a month later, uh, filed by every single gun, major gun rights group: the NRA, the um, Firearms Policy Coalition, Second Amendment Foundation, Gunners of America. They all have cases going against this initiative. And um, but they, it's also not just federal cases. There's there's also a state case filed by Gunners of America, which uh, then a few hours after the the federal judge delayed implementation, but didn't block the the law completely. A state judge did block the law completely, so that none of it's going into effect as of right now. The state is going to appeal this to the the state supreme court. So Oregon has, um, as you might imagine, they they have a second amendment analog in their state constitution. Yeah. That's, you know, right to keep and bear arms provision. That's pretty similar to what the second amendment says. And so this state judge blocked the law under that provision using very similar reasoning to what the Supreme court had used in Bruin, which we talked about, you know, a a while back on the show. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it'll be interesting to actually to see how those two cases play out because the state judge is uh, you're taking a much uh, more uh, much stricter view of that Bruin reasoning for for gun laws. Basically, you know, if there's no historical analog for this law, and of course there wasn't, there weren't laws yeah. like this back during the founding era, um, then it's not constitutional. That's what the Bruin test, you know, is a significant part of it is. Uh, whereas the federal judge is taking a different view that. She's saying perhaps uh, magazines that hold more than 10 rounds are not protected by the Second Amendment. Uh Um, And she argues that the permit to purchase system is a shall issue system. So there's no like um, subjectivity allowed on the part of the government officials. If you pass the rule, you know, the the stated benchmarks, they have to give you the permit. Uh, So it's similar in that way to how most states do conceal carry and what the uh, Supreme Court said was uh, legal, at least uh, Justice Kavanaugh and Roberts wrote a concurrence in Bruin that said, you know, shall issue 
concealed carry permits yeah. so, are so that acceptable. was that was that was the big the big line was shall issue versus might issue right where where there was yeah, a may a, issue a yeah. may issue so uh, uh, if you know you submit your application there is a subjective board for which says i don't know maybe you mm-hmm. maybe you and then shall issue is hey look if you fill out all the all the if you check all the the things off the the piece of paper then you get mm-hmm. it there's it's kind yeah. of a dumb pipe right and so that's so her reasoning is that the permit to purchase system that Oregon is putting in place is shall issue. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's no, uh, now there are some provisions in there that maybe depends on how you read them, whether there is subject to be allowed. Uh, you know, there's, there's one that's uh, sort of let's uh, officials deny permits, but if they conclude that you are a threat to yourself or others based on, uh, you know, uh, certain evidence, but uh, it's, it's whether that, you know, pushes the line to a more may issue set, a subjective measure is unclear. I mean, this is so also the other thing about these orders is that they're temporary. This is the temporary restraining order phase, which means that it's, it's the earliest phase of this ruling. So there hasn't been a full uh, adjudication of the facts yet. And so perhaps things will change. Usually, uh, usually, what the judge rules in the temporary restraining order phase is going to be very similar to what they rule in the preliminary, yes. inju- the next, the next section, the preliminary injunction phase. So uh, it seems like the federal judge is inclined to let these laws go into effect as long as now she, I don't think she's not inclined to let the permit to purchase law go into effect until there's an actual permit system. Until there's a system to do it. Right? Yeah. But otherwise it's, yeah, the feeling you get reading her decision is that she's inclined to uphold this law, whereas the state judge is obviously has the exact opposite inclination. Yeah. So it'll be interesting because that is guided by the the uh, gun rights lobby that 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 the, the the state the state lawsuit is coming from that perspective. The federal lawsuit was coming from people within Oregon saying, "Hey, can you please give us a timeout here because this thing was not conceived yeah. well. We need to figure out how to put our our ducks in a row." Yeah, I would say the federal judge sided more with the Oregon Department of Justice and the state judge sided more with the gun rights, uh, you know, plaintiffs. So that's a fair way of looking at it. From from your perspective, you've said a few times that the law was just poorly written. Uh, Obviously, there are issues of, you know, kind of regulatory capture in in America where you're putting, uh, uh, you know, limits on something effectively deciding that, that that's going to be the way for which they can be either if not banned, then greatly discouraged. I could certainly imagine that there were many voters in in Portland that that would be uh, uh, very excited. And I guess there was 50.7 uh, uh, enough within the state of Oregon that would be uh, fine with with having gun ownership mm-hmm. be restricted to the point of, of possible obsolescence. Uh, do you get the sense that that was the idea here or, or this was just something that that was poorly written and and put on the ballot uh, in, in, a, in a situation that was just not built to succeed. No, I think that people didn't, you know, as far as the people who voted for this to go into place. And by the way, I believe where Portland is, that county is the only one that actually voted in favor of the bill. All the other counties uh, voted against it. Uh, but yeah. there's obviously more people more there. People so in Portland. It, passed, it passed. But uh, I, my understanding is, you know, it wasn't as though when they were advocating for this ballot initiative that they were saying, oh, this will make all gun sales illegal. Now, I don't think they even realized that that was going to happen. Um, you know, I just uh, So I don't think the voters voted for it because yeah. they 
they thought it was going to be one of this sort of, if you remember how we first made drugs illegal in the United States, it was by like a license, you know, putting, uh, you know, permitting requirements on it. And then you couldn't have, you couldn't possess it without the permit. And so, yeah. but if you showed up to re- register for the permit, but you didn't have the permit to begin with that it's, le- you know, I mean, like it's just a, yeah effectively making it illegal even though there's technically a process to legally own it but this, but this was not sold to I, this, this was wasn't sold like to, that. This, yeah, this was sold to voters more as common sense gun legislation and yeah. less like here is here is the hole in the sheet to ban guns right this was sold as you know permit to purchase and uh you know reduces the number of gun deaths uh yeah. in the, in a state you know this is the arguments that they used um same for magazine limits you know, yep. that that has an effect on gun crime. And, and so, you know, this we should pass these laws for the sake of reducing gun crime uh, while, you know, people will still be able to own guns. Um, uh, that was the selling point for this. And, um, you know. It just happens that it wasn't very well written. I don't you know why they decided to make. The, you know, the, the magazine ban doesn't really go into effect for another until like June, right? Until yeah. the summer. I, I don't know why they wrote it out the way that they did for the permit to purchase system, which is much more onerous thing to comply with. Well, that actually requires side. funding. It requires staffing and funding and, and, right. and all, all sorts of all sorts of stuff that goes beyond a ballot initiative. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I've never seen any government set up a permitting process in a month. Usually it takes them years to actually perfect something like that. But processing but, a permit within a month is often a challenge for, yeah, for many so, government agencies. So, uh, uh, yeah, so we, that was we, the we big deal, you know. Yeah, it's, we will certainly uh, keep an, an, an eye it, on that. Yeah, it, it's uh, a mess. Let me let me ask you about the state of of red flag laws. Obviously, this was something that was a hot topic after the Uvalde shooting this summer. Uh, it mm-hmm. has been a hot topic. I mean, it's something that I've heard more and more, probably even since Parkland is when I can I can remember it. It's sort of becoming a mm-hmm. central topic of yeah. a, a gun control conversations. There is a red flag law. In Colorado, where the Colorado Springs shooting just happened, it was not mm-hmm. applied to the 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 kid who was very troubled, probably would have made a fairly sympathetic case for a a, a red flag law uh, application there. Um, mm-hmm. Can you just give us a, a state of the union, if you will, on where America is on red flag laws? Are Is it a national thing? Is it still state by state? What is what is the deal? Yeah, it's still a state. By state policy, there was part of that gun control uh, bipartisan agreement from earlier this summer. There, there is a sort of funding mechanism now for red a flag federal laws funding to, mechanism. Yeah, to encourage the adoption of them. However, it it also allows states to use that same money for really any other program they want, like mental health uh, treatment mm-hmm. programs or school security programs. So. Uh, you know, it's sort of um, one of those things where it's uh, not likely to lead to more red flag laws being adopted because the main, I mean, uh, I mean, first of all, the main ad- obstacle to the adoption of red flag laws in the states that haven't adopted them yet. And I believe there's 19 states right now that have, have them on the books. Um, and yes, it did really pick up after Parkland. Um, mm-hmm. That was, even though those, these, 
extreme risk restraining orders, as they're, they're usually called, were around before Parkland. Uh, I think California was the first to adopt them, maybe Connecticut. Either way, there they were a couple of states that had them. Uh, it, it really gained popularity after Parkland. Is this sort of idea, obviously, that a lot of these mass shooters, the game popularity is as like a mechanism to stop mass shootings, even though that's not really what they're mainly used for. They're mainly yeah. used in, in situations of suicidal ideation, right? Somebody's a threat to themselves more than a threat to other people. But um, you know, it, it became this idea of like, here's here's a way that we could potentially stop mass shootings without sort of passing policies that are broadly affecting everyone, right? Like yeah. Sullivan's ban, AR-15 bans. This, this, this are, is targeted toward mass shooters as opposed to the guns by saying, if somebody believes you are going to be a threat to yourself or others, the state mm-hmm. has a right to remove your firearms or prevent you from buying them. Yeah, for temporarily for up temporarily. to a year usually yeah um and that's that's the idea and it's supposed to be basically like oftentimes you'll see shooters that had red flags in their past that indicated that perhaps they were going to commit some sort of violent act um you know things like domestic violence uh, mm-hmm. against their their parents or uh threats of carrying out attacks or uh you know uh, other other violent incidents previously but those things usually oftentimes just don't receive the level of um scrutiny they deserve right the, yeah. the response that's needed for that person to actually be convicted of a crime and and made into a prohibited person like in the United States to be prohibited from owning firearms under federal law, you have to commit a felony or a domestic violence misdemeanor, or you have to be convicted of these things, right? Not just accused of them or, or whatever, but, uh, or adjudicated mentally ill. So you have to be involuntarily committed, right? And mm-hmm. th- those processes are obviously, uh, fairly stringent to go through to get that. And that's, that's the idea, right? Because guns are second amendment guarantees a right to these firearms. So yeah. Uh, the idea is supposed to be that, you know, to have your rights infringed on, you have to go through due process of a court system or uh, mental health adjudication in order to have your rights taken away from you. Red flag laws are sort of a, meant to be like a, a stopgap or a middle ground where the, uh, the evidence necessary for somebody to be issued a, a red flag order someone to to have a red flag order issued against them is lower than it would be for a conviction in court or to be involuntarily committed in the vast majority of states and so the the compromise is generally that it's a lower evidence burden but also it's temporary so mm-hmm. it's not a permanent removal of your rights like a conviction would have or involuntary commitment. those things are lifetime bans but a red flag order is meant to be like, okay, right. We don't, maybe we don't have the evidence we need to convict this person or to commit them under our, you know, our mental health laws. And, you know, a lot of these shooters, sometimes there is evidence to do those things and yes. they're just not followed up on. But yeah, the idea Which, is I, maybe. I, I, I would make note that that Colorado Springs shooter who, who yes. uh, shot a, a club Q, he had been, arrested for like felony for a, bomb uh, a terroristic yeah for a bomb threat uh, uh mm-hmm. so it's like 
you know, that that's yeah. that's, a, that's, a, that's a situation where, like, theoretically, there there should have been there should have been uh, ample reasons to deny him mm-hmm. the purchase of of a gun. Yeah, this is kind of where you get into the controversy of red flag laws. Is that there, it's a lower evidence burden to take yeah. someone's firearms away, and so that's that's going to be controversial to a lot of gun rights advocates because you know it's a right, and they want due process protections for that right, even in a yeah. situation where the confiscation is temporary or supposed to be temporary. Um, you know, that's going to make a lot of people uncomfortable. And at the same time, like uh, all the, well, most of the most recent mass shootings. So Buffalo, Colorado Springs, uh, mm-hmm. the Virginia Walmart shooting and the UVA shooting were both in Virginia. All those States have red flag laws too. Yeah. So this, this, there's also, a, you see sort of a, a problem with the idea that red flag laws are supposed to make it a little bit easier to take someone's firearms away because um, you know, first they're just, uh, people have been focused on this as like the solution. And yes, in Colorado Springs, for instance, absolutely. He probably would have qualified for, uh, to have his guns taken away under a red flag order. Yeah. But nobody filed one. Same thing in Buffalo. He was he was taken. The Buffalo shooter had made threats uh, in school of committing violence and was taken by the police to a mental health facility. It's still not clear to me why that didn't qualify as an involuntary commitment under federal law. But apparently it yep. didn't. So he was able to buy guns later on. He wasn't red flagged by the police or anyone else. Uh, and so, you know, people focus on the, the failure of the red flag part. And to me, like the red flag laws are a temporary stopgap measure. Like it only yeah. takes the guns away for a, a year um, at most. And, you know, usually the, the first order is for 14 days. There's obviously a lot of issues that people have with the the process in most states for this, too, because you can have you, you can get one of these orders issued against you in an ex parte hearing, which means the person who's being accused isn't even present for the hearing. Uh, Now they're supposed to follow up with another hearing if the person objects to the the order. Uh, But some of those can be an extended period of time, two weeks before you can even get in front of a judge. So there's, you know, there's these sort of process issues that people have with it, but also like, well, I don't know why people would go to the red flag law in the Colorado Springs case, because he, he should have been convicted of multiple felonies, which would have made him prohibited for life, not just for a year. And um, that's the bigger question to me when I look at that shooting. Like, why was he not prosecuted for he had a he threatened to kill his mother with a bomb. The police were called. They had to evacuate the whole neighborhood. He threatened to kill the police as well during that standoff. And he wasn't charged with he was charged. But he wasn't ever prosecuted. never prosecuted. Yeah. And his files were sealed, even though he's not a minor. He was 22. And uh, so, you know, it, why why did that happen? Not, you know, sure. You can also ask why he wasn't red flagged in addition to not being yeah. prosecuted. But to me, the bigger question is, why wasn't he prosecuted? Like, he, this is what happens when you just don't. uh like sometimes, you know, red flag, red flags and shooters past can be things where it's like, okay, at the time, without the the foresight that he was going to commit these horrible acts, most people who do this thing, you know, whatever, uh, express suicidal ideation or make a threat against another person, most of those people don't turn into mass shooters, right? In yes. in real life, and so. Uh, should our solution be to log to give the most harsh punishment to every person who does this because 
you know, 0.0001% are going to turn into a mass killer. You know, that's a harder question, but yeah, in this case, if you're committing, you're, you're doing bomb threats, uh, even though he didn't have a bomb, I, I you know, uh, that's part of the calculation. Yeah, I'm they're, sure. they're, yeah they were, they, they were never able to find the bomb. He just made the threat and said he was going right. to kill everybody. But like, that's a harder one for me. It's like, yeah, that's pretty clear evidence that this person is not well and shouldn't be allowed. It should be prosecuted for their crimes and not allowed to environ. So and and I, I think you know, if I get if I could summarize this argument and correct me if I'm wrong, but part of the frustration from some folks is that, well, look, if we've got laws on the books that would mm-hmm. deal with this and they were not followed up on, they were not. Uh, uh, use in the way that they could, then what what will adding additional laws do to solve a, a, a problem like this, uh, uh, especially like when it might make material harm? If, if it is a less effective solution, theoretically, than the thing that is on the books, or there are more uh, uh, pathways for which an overworked uh, law enforcement officer uh, uh, is 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 going to have paralysis on it. Like there, there's an element for which it could do material damage if your only goal was to get guns out of the hands of dangerous people. Yeah, that's and that's a common argument. Obviously, you hear in pro gun circles about uh, a lot of gun control proposals is that we're not enforcing the ones we already have well enough, and uh, it's just you know, all that passing new ones is going to do is burden law abiding people like that's that's you hear that all the time right and and look you know there there are of course uh proposals to try and fix these issues at least with the red flag laws you know in, in new york they want to now uh require police to file these or uh, you know requests in any yeah. case where they have evidence for one um uh, you know so that was the response to buffalo perhaps you'll see something like that in Colorado, I think some of the proposals now in Colorado are to expand who can request the red flag order, because uh, at the at this moment, I believe it's just uh, relatives and um, the police. So they want to expand it. You know, New York is, is a much more expansive one. It's, you know, school officials, mental health professionals, roommates. So you might see an expansion to that in Colorado. You know, they, these are also um, very new laws, so it's yeah. possible there's not as much uh, understanding of how to use them by the public uh, or the police. Although these are obviously, it's the other thing she you, you mentioned earlier about like what's the state of red flag laws. But these are very controversial measures at this point. Like yes. They're not quite. They haven't quite reached the level of. Uh, you know, AR-15 bans and universal background checks, which have been the same policies that we've debated for the last 30 plus years. And everyone is extremely dug in on uh, on each side. Mm -hmm. I don't think red flag laws have reached that level quite yet, but they're getting closer to that. The real opposition, as I mentioned earlier, the real opposition to passing these laws in the states don't have them is not the lack of funding, right? The federal law offers funding, but that wasn't the issue. That's not why states weren't adopting them. It's because it's started to become a more uh, partisan argument now with red flag laws where you have the gun control people on one side who want red flag laws and the, the gun rights people on the other side who don't want them. And, um, it's not universal yet, but it's trending closer to that. And that's why you don't see a lot of red states that have them. Uh, Florida is a big exception, of course, because of Parkland. You know, Park, yeah. Florida passed a bunch of gun uh, legislation after Parkland that you don't see in other red states. 
uh, and you're not likely to see anytime soon. And so as far as the state of red flag laws now, I think you're unlikely to see like Texas is probably not going to pass a red flag law after Uvalde. That's probably not going to happen. Um, If they were going to do it, they would have already done it by now, frankly. And what you'll see instead is probably blue states will double down on red flag laws, expand them out to be um, open to more people filing them. You know, like I just talked about in Colorado, uh, you'll, you'll probably see purple states fight over them more. I mean, Virginia has one, right? It's a more purple state. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably not going to get rid of it, but uh, you know, whether it expands it is another question. Um, and I, I think that's probably where it's, you know, it's sort of going to metastasize like a lot of these other gun debates at this point, it's probably reached the peak of where it's going to head. It's similar in nature to uh, permitless carry or constitutional carry where that, has probably reached close to the peak of where it's going to get as far as how many states have adopted it. You got 25 states right now. They're almost all deep red states, right? And you're probably not going to see permitless. Now that could change as time goes on, especially. It's it's funny you mentioned Florida. I saw, you know, Ron DeSantis about a week ago, you know, saying, Hey, put it on my desk and I'll sign a, a a concealed or a permitless carry uh, a bill. So it it might be a state with a red flag law and a permitless carry, which would be very, yeah, that would be super unique, but that's, uh, it's interesting DeSantis and uh, Florida and, and gun and permitless carry because, you know, uh, he's way behind the curve of all these other Republican governors, right? Abbott Kemp both got one past their, this last session and DeSantis has kind of played lip service to it. Like, yeah, I'd sign this or I'd support this. Uh, But he hasn't done anything to actually get it passed. Like Kemp did in Georgia, for instance, uh, where it was one of his like campaign promises that he fulfilled. And uh, so, uh, you know, whether or not that actually happens will be interesting because it's really, he, he, you know, he's been sort of hands off, like, it's, yeah, I support this. And if the legislature wants to put it on my desk, that's great. I'll but, but sign he's, it. He, he's, he's not putting the elbow grease behind the legislature like he has with, with, with other stuff. Yeah. And it hasn't hurt him either. Obviously he won no. re-election huge this year. So uh, it's interesting, you know, as far as uh, gun politics go in, in Florida these days because he used to be a leader sort of in the the pro gun side like they were the yeah. one of the first I think they were the first ones to adopt uh, shall issue gun carry permitting back when nobody had it in the 80s and uh, and now you know 40 years later everybody has shall issue even even before the Supreme Court made that the law of the land you know there were only eight states that didn't have it so it was uh, at the grassroots level had great success. That's where, you know, that's my one thing with permitless carry. Like I, it's probably reached its zenith, but then again, um, gun rights advocates have gotten, have moved things through elections, through, you know, grassroots advocacy from the point where it was illegal to conceal carry in basically every state outside of Vermont, um, mm-hmm. uh, to, the point where it was legal to carry in every single state. Now, uh, maybe that'll continue. The tr- maybe they'll be able to continue this trend and push through permitless carry places where you might not expect it to go. Uh, but uh, I don't know. We'll have to see on that one. I, you know, and maybe red flag laws will pick up some more momentum. You know, obviously yeah. mass shootings drive a lot of that adoption yeah. and uh, they, they're not stopping anytime soon, likely. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to see what happens. Although usually in a red state, the reaction to a red to a mass shooting is not let's pass more gun control. So yeah. 
It's yeah. usually the let, opposite. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me ask you this one question on the way out of here. Uh, one of the first things that we had you on the show to talk about was the health of the NRA, once one of the most uh, vaunted political organizations in America, certainly has mm. fallen under a lot of uh, controversy. And it seems, you know, as we are now coming out of the midterms where Republicans lost a, a, a bunch of 50-50 kind of races, there's a lot that we have talked about in terms of candidate quality, but when the conversation is about being outspent, I now looking back, don't remember a whole lot of, uh, you know, the NRA dumping a, a, a ton of money into some of these big battleground states. But maybe I'm just not following it the right way. What, what is what is the health of the NRA? The NRA was still spending significantly in this election, not as significantly as previous midterms um so their spending is is down and then you know that's is large part due to the fact that their fundraising is way down um yeah. you know they've they've seen a real collapse in their membership dues and their contributions over the last three years since uh you know 2018 their their peak was you know 2019 and they're sorry 20 <laughs> 2016 was their real peak um yeah. when they were spe- they spent like 50 million dollars in that election and I believe in this election, they've spent about 17, uh, somewhere around there, maybe a little bit more. They spent they spent a bunch in they actually spent a lot in uh, comparatively to the gun control groups. They spent a ton in the runoff in Georgia, which they just lost. Really? Of course, Walker yeah. Walker lost. So, uh, yeah, they spent uh, over three million dollars, whereas the gun control groups spent less than 100,000. Um, why the uh, th- that's sort of more interesting to me for why the gun control groups didn't really get involved. But. The NRA did get pretty heavily involved. They ran TV ads. They spent a lot of money and it didn't, it didn't work at all. Uh, I don't think, not that anyone's necessarily surprised that Walker lost that race. Yeah. I would suspect that the gun control uh, groups didn't want to run ads in Georgia because part of the reason why Warnock was in the position that he was in was that, you know, there were Brian Kemp voters who were like, I just don't like Herschel Walker and I'm not going to vote for him. And so like, why, 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 why push uh, uh, you know, any voters that, that might make up that coalition even further away. Yeah. And of course, like gun control is not necessarily a huge winning issue in Georgia. So usually no. the, what they would do, is, and they did this in the midterms, the gun control groups uh, is they'll pick some other issue they think is a more, more of a, a winner, winner in that election. Yeah. And, and they'll run ads that, include that you know messages on abortion or uh on healthcare that was healthcare was a big one in 2020 that then abortion was a big one in this election for the mm-hmm. gun control groups but they didn't even do that which is kind of odd uh, they just weren't really engaged in that race uh, maybe they were just really confident and they did win so yep so. <laughs> you know we can't i don't know but um and you know warnock it's interesting the, the race wasn't really about gun policy very much no. i would say um, you know, obviously there's a lot of other stuff going on with Walker, uh, and, and there's the whole Trump, uh, aspect to the race and, and all this stuff that everybody's talked about ad nauseum. Guns were not a top issue, even though, and that's actually kind of interesting because it's Georgia. Walker, uh, Warnock is the incumbent Democratic senator, right? And he's a co-sponsor of the Senate assault weapons ban, which is not yeah. necessarily something you'd expect from a Southern Democrat, but, but he was, and it didn't, uh, it didn't really become an issue in the campaign. Honestly, Walker didn't really make it an issue. And, uh, you know, he really cruised to, to the win in the, in the runoff there. So, uh, it's not good news. I would say for the NRA or for gun rights advocates generally that they lost that race, um, or that they lost most of those other battleground races. The NRA spent 
pretty big. That's where most of their money was concentrated uh, was in those battleground Senate races. So Arizona, Nevada, yeah. uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Georgia, um, and what North Carolina, right? But they got a couple yeah. of wins, but yeah, they're obviously their goal was to win the Senate, control the Senate, and they didn't get that. In fact, they went backwards. So well, yeah, and that would be, I mean, a, a lot of the the states you named were were states that the Republicans held, right? So you were you were you were both yeah, Wisconsin incumbents. and North yeah, Carolina they North held, Carolina. but but they yeah. lost Pennsylvania, Arizona, <laughs> Nevada. Uh, and Georgia. So like, you know, th- that's, that's where all their money was going really. Interesting. In this I'd say it is, it is going to be an eternal fascination of mine to track, you know, considering where the, the NRA was as I was kind of coming of political age and, and especially the, the, the force it was on the right, the boogeyman it was on the left. And now, mm-hmm. you know, you don't, you don't hear as, as much about it, even as guns are something that is talked about quite a, quite a bit. And it's some discussed on the reload dot com mm-hmm. where you can uh, read all of the coverage from Stephen Gataski. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for making time to come on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Politics, 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 politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. Our show is edited by Brett Stewart. If you would like to thank Stephen Gataski for coming on the show, you can head on over to px3guest.com. Email the program. We're going to do a mailbag next week. So, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our Twitter is at px3tweets. You can find me live on the internet. Thank you to everybody who tuned in to our stream for the runoff coverage. That is px3live.com. Share this podcast with your friends, family, and clergy at px3podcast.com. And you can support us with a one-time donation at paypal.me slash payjury. Venmo, man, we've been getting some great Venmo, um, some great Venmo stuff here. Uh, 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 thank you to everybody who's done it. Justin Dash Young Dash Twenty Cash App is PX Three Cash, and you can send anything you want to me in the mail. PO Box One Five Three One Eight Four Austin Texas Seven Eight Seven One Five. Of course, you can always get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcasting schedule. And the $10 tier gets your name right at the end of the show like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Dustin, Jason, Andres, C. Garcia, Matt, Craig Potts, MC Dradian, Unsafe DB Levels, Katie, Amanda, Ye Old Pinball Shop, DP4 Bongo, Catherine, Todd, persons familiar with the matter, and vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Edison, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B-A, select, start. Dr. G, Neil, Charles, Darren, 100-mile runner, Idris Arslandian, Blue Front, and the Lenina, D.L., Steven, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Diana's Turn 2, Miranda Janelle, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul is awesome, Brad, Richard, Just Another Pilot, Middle-Aged Mike, who loves Frank, got abducted, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, The Gen, A-L-D-L-L-D-L-D, Really, Chopper, Andrew, and Joshua. You'll love to see it. I hope everybody has a good weekend. You know? Listen to some Christmas music or, or Hanukkah music or whatever the, uh, the the holiday season defines for you. I'll be back here uh, for the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday edition for Patreon subscribers and for everybody else on Wednesday. This is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss. Oh, 
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.